Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The actions, or more notably the inaction of the school district police chief and other law enforcement officers, move swiftly to the center of the investigation into this week's shocking school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. The delay in confronting the shooter, who was inside the school for more than an hour, could lead to discipline, lawsuits, and even criminal charges against police. The attack that left 19 children and two teachers dead in a fourth grade classroom was America's deadliest school shooting in nearly a decade. And for three days, police offered a confusing and sometimes contradictory timeline that drew public anger and frustration. Now let's go live to Uvalde, Texas, where we're joined by Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global National News. Reggie, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Now with this latest news, Reggie, regarding uh, police waiting before intervening, how has this news been taken in the community? I mean, look, this is a community, Jazz, that is, uh, that is continuing to sink under uh, the grief of what it experienced uh, on Tuesday. And mixed in with that grief now is a resounding anger, anger directed towards the state, anger directed towards the Department of Public Service for not only the miscommunication to the public in the hours and days after this shooting, but also in the admission from police that this was a flawed execution of a strategy to try and take down a shooter that goes against what the Texas training manual says. Now, in regards to the investigation into uh, Salvador Ramos, where are we presently uh, locally and, and I guess uh, uh, investigation by the state police as well? Well, I mean, look, there are calls here, number one, for an investigation of the response, uh, and there are growing calls for the Department of Justice to be brought in. When it comes to the local investigation, uh, the information that's coming out is incremental at best. It is going very slow. One can imagine uh, that it's going to take time because there is so much information to try and pour through. Uh, a lot of it delved way deep into social media, the, the conversations, the interactions that the suspected gunman had with people from around the world, not posted publicly from what we're hearing from police, but rather in private messages. Uh, and they're trying to use this as a way to not only get into the mind uh, of what was going on in the gunman, uh, but also as a way to try and retrace the final steps, the steps that in maybe in the months before when he was purchasing the weapons and the steps leading up to the moments when he walked into the school. There's a lot of unknowns right now. His mother says she doesn't understand what was going on. She's simply asking for forgiveness. Uh, I don't know how close you are in regards to the school site itself. What have you been hearing and, and just seeing in regards to your interaction with, with community members in Uvalde? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, th at this moment, I'm standing outside of the Oasis Outback. It's the sporting goods store uh, where the suspected gunman purchased the rifles uh, that were used, allegedly used on Tuesday. For the last three days, I've been standing uh, at the uh, town square in Uvalde talking to residents, talking to some of the parents of kids who go to the school. And that's where you hear the emotion. You see the anger coming from them, asking if something had been done differently by police. Could lives have been saved? An hour, according to one mother, is enough time to kill far too many people, especially when there are 19 police officers, according to police, standing in the hallway. We've heard from some of the students that were inside uh, of the school. Uh, we talked to a grade three student who was in uh, a separate classroom who could hear the gunshots and who lost not only family members, but friends uh, as well. This, this, is, um, this is a devastating story to be covering, and it is a devastating story for this small community 90 miles west of San Antonio. 
Mm-hmm. Now, many would argue that uh, Texas uh, would be defined as a pro-gun state. Um, how has the politics played out in this? Because in in these situations, it, it inevitably leads to a broader conversation about uh, gun control, gun laws, uh, the Second Amendment. Uh, how has that been playing out in the community uh, itself? Well, I mean, look, there are calls here from some residents saying if there were diff- if gun legislation in the United States or even in Texas was different, uh, would this have happened? But arguably, this has been thrust back into a national stage where the political conversation over gun rights and gun control is at a simmering point. And, Jazz, that's because this is the second mass shooting in two weeks. First, Buffalo then Uvalde, Texas. You have Democrats saying that common sense measures need to be put in place, better background checks, more red flag laws, but you face resistance and pushback from Republicans who are heavily backed by the National Rifle Association that says that gets in the way of law-abiding citizens who have that Second Amendment right to be able to bear arms. And that's why uh, we find the United States in this position over and over again, because there are such polar views trying to come to uh, an agreement on something that neither side will agree to, When it comes to guns in this country, even the Democratic president, who's on his way here tomorrow, has failed in trying to get something done to stop the gun violence. Do you think this incident, this time, uh, may push legislators to go that extra mile, may push the president of the United States uh, to to, um, perhaps work towards greater change? I know it's very difficult and, and you've articulated it very well. Does anybody think anything will change in America after this latest incident? Look, from the conversations I've had with people, they thought that change would happen after Sandy Hook. They thought that change would happen after El Paso. They thought change would happen uh, after Parkland or after the Pulse shooting, and it doesn't happen. Maybe incremental change does, but big change hasn't happened. I was talking to the parents last night of Jessica Gawi. She was the one who died in 2012 in Aurora, Colorado. She escaped from the Toronto Eaton Center shooting. Her parents, who travel around the country dealing and helping families cope uh, with this kind of situation, they say that they do feel that something could change because of the massive protest we saw outside of the NRA convention in Houston this weekend. Slight uh, bits of optimism that the United States could be at a turning point. But when you listen to what Republicans are saying, when you listen to what the gun lobby is saying, that this isn't a gun problem, this is a mental health problem, this is a video game problem, this is a broken homes problem, it really does become harder to see how change can happen. Uh, for you as a journalist covering this, uh, and I know you've covered many other stories that are very tough emotionally, um, what's it been like just, uh, you know, you, you fly into a community when something that that, it's, that has occurred is so traumatic, uh, and then you have to speak to these parents, you speak to the community leaders. What has it been like for you just meeting these people? It's hard. Uh, I mean, I, I've covered a lot of stories where you go into a community that's been devastated by uh, by a social issue or by a natural disaster, uh, and you have you, you empathize with the people who have lost everything. But this is different. Uh, this is a family that uh, this is a city that's been broken apart and lost some of its youngest residents, some of its most defenseless residents, and it's really hard to um, to not get emotional when you're talking to these parents of kids. Uh, whose futures were taken away from them uh, and, and for parents who are simply going to, to find themselves with a hole in their heart for the rest of their lives and for the rest of their families' generations' lives. This, this has been one of the most difficult stories to tell in a very small town um, that, that, that would have never been on the map had it not been for something so devastating. 
When Salvador Ramos killed 19 students and two teachers during his shooting spree on Tuesday, he allegedly posted disturbing images online prior to carrying out the senseless attack. Now, according to reports, an Instagram account connected to Ramos featured disturbing photos. That account has since been taken down. It was just last week that New York's Attorney General, Letitia James, announced that her office was investigating social media companies after another mass shooter had used the online platforms to plan, promote, and stream a massacre in a Buffalo grocery store that left 10 dead. James said her office would investigate Twitch, 4chan, 8chan, and Discord, along with other platforms that the shooter used to amplify the attack. Now, the United States, some have argued, remains so politically divided, the social media platforms that were once about friendly discussions have evolved into very much into anti-social networks where people now find themselves in echo chambers that support their opinions and views. Joining us now to discuss social media and whether it enables mass shootings is Meredith Gansner. She is a professor of psychiatry, development, and social media at Harvard University. Professor Gansner, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's a very big topic, uh, an ever-evolving topic as well. Uh, Can social media enable mass shootings um, uh, in the United States and around the world? Are we seeing that? So I think it's a very important question to ask. And I think we've seen in the media that there tends to be a lot of articles around social media being linked to adverse mental health outcomes. Um, And I I always want to make sure that people know uh, all the studies that we have done so far, looking at the connection between adverse mental health outcomes and uh, social media, use of social media, um, they're largely cross-sectional, which means that they're capturing one point in time, um, saying that kids at that one point in time who spend more time on social media tend to be more at risk for things like depression, anxiety, and aggression towards self and others. However, those studies don't tend to tell us the direction of that relationship, right? They just tell us what is happening at that one point in time. So we don't actually have any studies that prove what we call causality, that say that social media itself is a cause of violent behavior. Uh, My research uh, that I've done for the last decade has tried to increasingly clarify the nature of the relationship sort of in the moment between social media and Internet use and mood symptoms. And we've actually found that by and large, uh, the kids that I treat, so kids who tend to have anxiety and depression, actually tend to, when they're feeling depressed and anxious, um, they tend to go, be more likely to go online, and they're more likely to have their mood symptoms get better after increased engagement with their phones and screens, um, rather than causing a worsening of symptoms. And so I, I think it really highlights the fact that maybe it's those kids who are already struggling that are more likely to spend more time online on social media. That said, uh, Mm -hmm. I think that there are many ways in which social media can, in fact, enable uh, people who might be already at risk of violent behavior. Uh, Kids who tend to be, as we've seen in these shootings, um, at risk of violent behavior may be more likely to be loners, to be disconnected from youth in, in their peer groups. Uh, and we know that if they're feeling, you know, down and, and sad, they may then go online and then look for connection, as is normal for many teenagers. And unfortunately, many of these teenagers will then turn to the kind of first source of connection that is offered to them, which could very well be an extremist website or an extremist group um, that is very adept at, you know, reaching out to these youth, um, encouraging very extremist viewpoints, encouraging racist viewpoints, um, and sort of, as you said, kind of putting them in an echo chamber where all that is talked about is the fact that 
they they need to be angry. They need to get angry. Their mortality, which is called um, mortality salience, their mortality is at risk. And so they become more and more aware of the fact that I need to protect myself. I need to do something. And they're really, they lose access to anyone else that can start to, to help them maybe guide them away from those behaviors and those thoughts. And then, you know, the, before they know it, there's this tendency to kind of start fantasizing about, you know, like, what life could be like and I could engage in these violent activities and, I, you know, I could do something that my community online would be proud of. Um, and then that, I think that sort of online behavior is what really kind of triggers a, a fall kind of into subsequent violent behavior. So we're not really saying it's the social media itself. I think many healthy youth can use social media without mm-hmm. becoming violent, but there are at-risk youth out there for whom social media can then encourage violent behavior. So sense. what do we as parents or as a society do to help these kids? Because as you say, they may be loners already, mm-hmm. and the use of s- social media takes them down a different type of rabbit hole. Uh, how do we help these kids? That's a great question. Um, I know it's, I want to say that there are certainly uh, kind of the level of the government, there are policy changes that I think need to go into play in terms of gun control um, mm-hmm. and, and also in terms of mental health. Um, but at the level of the individual, because I, I do recognize that uh, my country is, is somewhat locked in terms of being able to do things at the level of the government, um, at the level of the individual, I think we, it is really important that we try to identify these youth um, as early as possible. And I know, you know, as a psychiatrist, I, I definitely do my best to try to identify children who are at risk of violent behavior, as I know all of my colleagues do. Um, but the mental health system is, is fairly broken in this country. And you know, I, um, in Evaldi, they said that there wasn't even a, a psychiatrist, really, that they could you know, turn to for counseling after the fact, let alone help the youth uh, that uh, carried out the mass shooting. So and we really need to have you know, better access and better recognition. Um, and some of that is going to require just more mental health uh, clinicians in, in areas that don't have service currently. Um, but I think, you know, parents also need to be more aware of what their children are doing online. Um, mm-hmm. Teachers, too. I, I don't want uh, to overly burden parents and, and teachers in situations like this, but I don't think that parents and, and teachers always ask what children are doing online. And if they do sometimes, especially if youth is, is starting to go down this rabbit hole, right, of dangerous extremist content, I think there's a there's a fear that you know if they tell parents or teachers they'll get shut down they'll be shamed, um, and we know when we shame youth like this right youth that already don't have any connection to other people they're even more likely to sort of push away and separate from others in their communities which then puts them more at risk for situations like what happened in Nivaldi. Before I uh, we chat a little bit more about the social media platforms, what's a good age for kids to start using social media? where they can actually comprehend some of the things that they are going to be inundated with. Uh, is there a, an age that you would recommend or roughly sort of what age group, you know, when, as parents we should feel comfortable um, kids slowly using social media? You know, I, this may be a bit of a cheat of an answer, but I think it largely depends on the child. Um, I will say, though, you know, uh, most 
kids before the age of 9 and 10 tend to use digital media more in kind of what we call passive use. So they don't really have as much interest anyway in social media platforms. They tend to just watch videos, um, play games online. It's really not till kind of the later tween years, uh, so like 11, 12, and then teen years, um, where you start to want to engage more and connect more. And that's very normal of adolescent development. And so I would say that really there should be no reason that children should be on social media before that before that age where they are looking to kind of make social connections because what we want right we want kids to be using social media to strengthen the relationships that they already have with you know existing individuals that they know or alternatively to kind of channel some of their passions and interests um, with people and trusted individuals online um, I think you know before the age of 10 or 11 I don't think that they are at a developmental stage where they can make good decisions about what they might be doing and encountering on social media um, so I would I frequently tell parents, um, you know, obviously it's their decision as the parents when to allow their children to have access to social media. Um, but if they're going to do it, you know, earlier than the, the teen years, and I think even during the teen years, they really need to have um, their kind of finger on the pulse of what their kids are doing and looking at online. We talked a little bit about, well, you know, what parents need to be doing and uh, the impact social media can have on these individuals who are involved in these mass shootings. Is there any accountability we should be demanding from these social media platforms. They have millions and millions of followers, of course, uh, but one could argue that uh, they play such a big role in our lives that there should be some responsibility, some accountability from these large platforms. Uh, I agree. I think that it's really incredibly unfortunate that platforms haven't tried to do more uh, to counter this kind of increase in, in violence and extremism that we're seeing um, I think especially in, in the light of all the misinformation from our last election and the fallout after that, I think you know, it's reasonable that these, these companies say, oh, there's so, many, there's so many platforms, there's so many ways of uh, communicating with others through platforms, and there's so many profiles. You know, how on earth are we supposed to keep track of all potentially dangerous content to flag it? And, you know, I, I admit that this, that specifically is, is not my area of expertise, so I, I, can't, I can't validate the truth of that. Um, but I will say that you know, these social, plot, social media platforms need to do a better job even of just helping uh, outreach to others regarding you know, what they should do in the event that they see something that is alarming or frightening on social media or, or that makes them nervous. Um, you know, I think frequently of my hospital system where we have a way to kind of file um, without blame, file a notification if we've seen any sort of situation in the hospital system where we think a patient has been put at danger, um, you know, either intentionally or unintentionally. It's usually unintentionally. Um, and we can, we can flag that. And the best way to get those those notifications to our hospital system is to make it easy for us to do so, to make the process as quick and streamlined as possible. And there is constant notification from the hospital system of the way that we can do that. Um, and as far as, you know, we've seen on social media, there isn't, there are ways to, to report things, but there's no feedback surrounding, you know, reports that do happen. Um, there's no easy way for us to, to quickly say, okay, like, this is what I need to do when I see this. This is the kind of information that I should be worried about as a viewer. If I see someone saying this, this is exactly who I need to report it to, and this is an easy way to do so. Um, at, you know, the touch of the button, they, we haven't seen that sort of mobilization that social media platforms could be doing. Um, they have a 
real opportunity right now to step in and say, hey, you know, if you see, if you see something, say something, and we're going to make that easy for you. Um, and I think it's incredibly unfortunate um, that in, in light of what has happened this last week that we haven't heard more from these companies speaking up about this. Do you think the government needs to step in here and demand greater accountability for society from these platforms? Because it doesn't seem like they're moving at all, or are there baby steps in the grand scheme of things? When you look at so much hate that you still see on social media platforms, um, violent behavior, uh, threats that are there, uh, it seems like little to nothing is being done and things are actually getting worse in some cases. Uh, do you think there needs to be government intervention in regards to public policy that can bring about some of that change? I do. I mean, I'm definitely mindful of the fact that certainly, you know, social media uh, isn't to blame entirely for for these shootings. I still hold the gun industry very responsible for that. And I'm, mm-hmm. I know I'm, I'm not alone in that um, my opinion. But I do think that as, as much as political parties can agree upon holding social media platforms more accountable um, for what they're putting up there and leaving up there for people to see, um, especially in these environments that we know these companies are intending to keep people on these platforms and to keep the attention of people um, to stay on them for as long as possible. If that is their goal, to keep people immersed in this world because it is good for their bottom line and their companies, then they do need to be held accountable. And if that means the government and stepping in to, to do so and hold them accountable, then I think by all means that should happen. Uh, as an American, um, when you found out what happened in Texas, what, what went through your mind? You, you study uh, social media, psychiatry, uh, but as an American watching uh, TV or hearing the news or reading uh, about what occurred, what, what immediately went through your mind when you heard? Uh, I, I mean, I was I was absolutely heartbroken. I have two small children who aren't, uh, you know, they're one of them isn't quite old enough to go to school. The other one is in kindergarten, and I just I I can I almost couldn't you know I could believe it because it just keeps happening and nothing seems to change. Um, but you know, there's just a, a wave of, of anger and frustration and a feeling of impotence. Um, that, you know, no matter what I do as a psychiatrist and taking care of my patients, uh, me as an individual, it's never going to be enough, um, which is, you know, why I felt like at least, you know, writing something and trying to speak out is the best I can do for the time being as an individual um, and trying to make my voice heard. Uh, but it's it's embarrassing, too. I think it's incredibly embarrassing that uh, we're in this country that is, putting our children at risk. It's literally putting our future at risk of death when they go to school. And nobody seems to want to do anything about that. Um, well, I, I take that back. There's actually, we know that the majority of the population wants to do something about that, but our political system is such that we aren't able to, to make meaningful changes um, to prevent people from getting shot at their, at their elementary schools. Um, and so it's, it's a lot of those emotions. It's anger and heartbreak, but also feeling that, you know, we, we need to not give in to that sort of complacency and that learned helplessness, and we need to speak up and uh, as much as, each individual can do something. All of us have to keep trying and fighting. You and I are having an adult conversation, a respectful conversation uh, on national radio right now. But sometimes when you look at social media, strangers will attack each other because they disagree. Uh, part of me, when I lo- you know, look at social media, look at the interaction, I find that social media has lowered um, 
just lowered the empathy that we have for each other. And maybe you disagree and you've studied this, but I think we've just lowered the empathy. We, for some reason, that's not just an American thing, but Canadian thing as well. And I do hold social media accountable for that. Do you see that yourself as in regards to empathy? You know, that that's an excellent question. I, I will say that, you know, that the humans as a species have done remarkably well being incredibly cruel and unempathetic to each other for centuries. Um, so clearly a lack of empathy is not, is not a novel thing. Um, however, I do think that the sheer uh, scope of social media and the way that social media does connect everyone internationally, I think it's far more evidence just you know how much how much virulence there can be out there, and a lot, how much of a lack of empathy can exist. And I, and I do also want to say that um, you know people that have looked at and researchers that have looked at online extremism, um, and regardless of kind of where that comes from, the alt right here in America, um, ISIS, they have you know found that the more that we engage on online, um, there can be a risk sometimes of not really realizing the ramifications of what we say and do, right? People become more um, separated for the consequences of their actions. They don't see the people that they're hurting as easily, um, which is why cyberbullying you know, has been connected to higher rates of suicidality than in-person bullying alone. Um, there's this, this way that we can make ourselves almost... Um, I don't want to say, you know, okay with it, but rather, like, just we lose the ability and that human ability to see the suffering of other people um, when we're doing it through social media. And I think, you know, for people that are on online extremist sites, I think, you know, they lose the ability to to see that the the sort of mindset that they're leaning into um, is absolutely terrifying and enables violence. Um, and I think it is easier and easier for people to fall into that um, when they are in an environment where they're you know, separated from other viewpoints, where they don't see the people that they're hurting. Um, it becomes uh, something that is um, easier to fall into and, and easier to separate oneself uh, from one's empathy in that, in that situation. When it comes to mass shootings, the names are all too familiar. Columbine, Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook, Parkland, and now Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. The U.S. gun homicide rate is 26 times that of other high-income countries, according to research by Everytown for Gun Safety, a U.S. gun control organization. More people die from gun violence by early February in the U.S. in a typical year than during an entire calendar year uh, in peer countries, according to that organization. Now, Canada has not been immune to these tragedies, but the United States inhabits a unique cultural and legal context. As Canadians, we consume American news, current affairs, and culture. How can we not be impacted, some would argue? After all, they are our neighbors. But does American gun violence impact Canada? Uh, well, joining us now to discuss the issue is Ju Yang Lee, professor of sociology, gun violence, and Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Professor Lee, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Uh, Professor Lee, what impact do you think events like Uvalde this week, but many others that I've described uh, in this introduction, what impact do, the, do these stories have on Canada in your mind? Well, that's a great question. I think in Canada, there tends to be this response where we, we hear about these tragic mass shootings happening in the U.S. and there's a little bit of back padding. People in Canada um, look at the, these tragic stories, these sad stories,
stories of what's going on in the U.S. and they think to themselves, I'm so glad to live in Canada because Canada is not at all like this. And to some extent, they're correct. Canada does not have the same rate of violence that we see in the U.S. But the other reality is that Canada is actually uh, much more similar to the U.S. than sometimes we like to admit. Um, and I say that as an expat who is from the U.S. and now lives in Canada and have, have even caught myself in that logic at times where I, I say, I'm so glad that I don't live in the U.S. anymore because Canada is a much safer place to be. And again, quantitatively speaking, that is true in some cases, but there are still mass shootings up here. We, we are a handful of years removed from a mass shooting in Quebec City at a mosque. There was a van attacker in North York, Ontario, who was inspired by a mass shooter from Isla Vista, California. Um, and, and every year we commemorate the, the massacre at the Ecole Polytechnique. So um, these, are, these are still issues here. And I, 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 I hope that Canadians don't keep hearing about these tragic shootings and thinking uh, and get complacent and think, okay, well, at least it's not like that up here because uh, we still have those same issues going on. Mm-hmm. How do we protect Canada or at least, um, you know, keep Canada safe or safer uh, than what's happening in the United States? Because so much of what we see uh, comes from American media, what we mm-hmm. consume in certain cases when it comes to social media. How do we yeah. keep Canada, Canada in many ways? As you said, we are generally safer, but uh, these things do happen here. How do we keep Canada safer? Well, I think Canada is doing a decent job in its overall gun control platform. The laws domestically are designed to um, check in on potential gun buyers. So you have to get a license here, which is one extra step that you don't have to go through in the U.S. in many states. So in Canada, you have a thing called a POW, a Possession and Acquisition License, which you have to renew every five years. That also requires you to take a safety training course. So there's intermittent times to check in with um, people who own guns. Now, the U.S. is kind of the wild, wild west. In a lot of states, you just have to pass an instant background check system, which will only flag you if you have a felony on your record if you've been hospitalized against your will or dishonorably discharged from the military. Otherwise, it's kind of up to the discretion of the individual who is selling you the firearm. Um, and one thing we do know from you know, extensive peer review research is that most mass shooters actually buy their guns legally. They don't rely on you know, underground networks of gun traffickers. They just go to the Walmart, they go to the gun range, and they submit their ID and they sail through the background check system and buy their guns that they then use to kill innocent people. So I think keeping that platform intact is, is a big, big part of why Canada doesn't have that problem. The other one, though, is that we share the border with the U.S. And so uh, many of the guns that are used in crimes in Canada are coming from the U.S. So in many ways, the U.S.'s gun problem is Canada's gun problem. Mm-hmm. In regards to... Um, uh gun violence and even these mass shootings, I guess one could argue, and I just had Professor um, Jonathan Ganap on before you. He's a Stanford professor who specializes in uh, the Constitution, political culture, and specifically the Second Amendment, the right to to bear arms. We do not have that enshrined in our Constitution. Do you think we've just been fortunate because of 
uh, how America was uh, was created, a violent civil war compared to Canada, that perhaps this is part of that issue as well, that we don't have something similar to the Second Amendment? I do think that's a big part because, you know, the Second Amendment is often invoked by gun rights advocates, you know, in, in the U.S. as kind of like a fail-safe. So, um, if, if you have logical arguments, if you have empirical research showing that, you know, guns, not storing guns safely leads to increased deaths or suicides in the home, which is it's well established, um, you always have this law on the books that um, treats having a gun as a right, right? Something that is at the very core of what it means to be American, to be a citizen, right? And so it's, it's very much tied into your identity as an American um, and so I think that is an additional hurdle, but I would caution them to, to put everything on the second amendment. I think sometimes people use the second amendment as a, as a legal rationale, as a way to justify, um, porous laws or gun owner, like, you know, gun ownership in the U S but the reasons that people actually own them are, are sometimes more complex. So people own them because it's part of a social thing that they do with their family or friends at the range. They own them because they want they don't trust the police and they want to defend themselves against um, imagined attackers. You know, so there are, are different reasons for why they actually own guns. But the Second Amendment is sometimes that, that legal foil that they use to to justify it. Now, Education Week in the United States has been tracking school shootings since 2018. According to its database, 119 such incidents have taken place since then. The organization tracks shootings where a firearm was discharged and where any person other than the suspect has a bullet wound resulting from the incident. Now, it doesn't track cases in which the only shots fired were from a school resource officer or police officer. The school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, get this, marks the 27th school shooting this year in the United States. Is it any wonder why school conducts uh, conduct active shooter drills? Now, practicing school lockdowns uh, became more common following the 1999 shooting in Columbine High School in Colorado and rapidly expanding as high-profile attacks took place in recent years. The portion of public schools conducting these drills grew from 40% in 2007 in the United States to 95% by 2017, as most states now require them. They become one of the most common school safety measures despite widespread fears that the procedure heightens anxiety and there is evidence of school shooters like the one in Parkland, Florida, who used the knowledge of the drills to their advantage. It's not just American schools, remember. Canadian schools also conduct these very drills. In America, they call them active shooter drills. In Canada, we call them lockdown drills. The meaning is the same. Joining me now to discuss mass shootings and the impact on Canadian students is Stephen Price. Mr. Price is an elementary school teacher in West Vancouver. Stephen, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So when you heard of this latest shooting in Texas, what went through your mind as, as a parent and, an, and as an educator? Well, it's every time one of these events comes up, you, you can't help but feel a piece of the tragedy that the parents in Uvalde will, will have felt and the teachers at that school. Um, I teach grade four and five, and so the kids are the same age. Um, when I, when I think of faces in my classroom, uh, and I think of what those kids at Ross Elementary had to go through 
that's that's uh, I, I I can't help but see my own classroom in that uh, in that scenario, and it's really hard. Yeah, it. Uh, I think a lot of Canadians uh, felt that way. It's, it, there's shock, there's anger, there's frustration. Um, as an educator, uh, this isn't the first time you've had to deal with something like this. Um, what do you tell children who are going to see these images, hear these stories, read about what's occurred? Uh, a lot of it is is beamed out not just on major TV networks, but on social media, TikTok, Snapchat, Twitter, uh, Facebook. What do, would you be telling kids in school when they see these images, when they hear about what's transpired? What do you tell kids? You know, each teacher is going to approach that in a different way. Um, and it, it really comes down to your classroom and your the age of your kids. So as a grade four or five teacher, my kids are are coming into that awareness of things that are going on in the world and and you can try to kind of keep it away. And with, with U.S. news, particularly as a Canadian teacher, I don't always address U.S. politics or U.S. Um, uh, stories in, in my classroom unless it's in the water, unless the kids are bringing it to me and asking me questions. And so when, when, when the conversation opens up, though, um, you, you give the kids a chance to express their feelings, to ask their questions, and you can, my goal is always to sort of show them that, that one, um, there's not good answers and the adults don't necessarily have good answers here either. Um, two, that uh, I'm there as their teacher, that the adults there in their school or their homes are there to do everything in their power to keep them safe at school. Uh, and three, um, that that it's it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to be sad. Um, it's okay to be worried, and we we address those worries as we go through our day. And we uh, but we carry on and, and we build um, we build community around both the positive that happens in our schools, and we also build community when we have hard stories like this one come into our classrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the United States, they call. Uh, them active shooter drills. In fact, uh, 95% of public schools in the United States now have these drills. Um, in Canada, we call them uh, lockdown drills, but they're the same thing. Uh, what do you do when there may be somebody entering your school, uh, potentially with a, a weapon, uh, wanting to do harm? Uh, have you, have you as an educator taken part in these uh, active uh, or lockdown drills? Yeah, in my area in British Columbia, it's it's typically once a year. Um, very often, we'll have local police come in and do the drill with us. So uh, how it looks is it's it's typically scheduled. With teachers know ahead of time, um, and uh, students may or may not know ahead of time, depending on the age of the kids. Um, so we'll we'll have the drill. Um, my students will know to go and find a hiding place in the classroom. So we kind of talk about that, and they've done this now. By the time they hit me, they've they've actually done it since kindergarten. So they're they're it's it's not new to them. Um, and so then we'll hide. Uh, all the lights go off. My job is to lock the classroom door, and 
uh, and then turn the lights off and find, find a spot to hide. Um, what happens next is, is that if the police are assisting us, um, then the police will actually come and check each door. Uh, and, uh, and we, we, we don't, I actually don't even answer the door when they knock. They, they knock and I wait for them to unlock the door. Somebody with a key comes and unlocks the door for, uh, to get it, to get access to the room. And, uh, and then the hard part of the drill happens. Um, every time I have that drill in my classroom, uh, my goal is to make, uh, make meaning of it with the students. Um, my goal is to help them understand. And so I open the floor to questions. I say, okay, so we've had this drill. Um, what are your questions? And, and those are hard days. Those are actually my least favorite days of, of, of every school year is the lockdown drill day. What questions, because you have to go to that. What questions do they ask? I'm curious. Well, so their, their questions are often, you know, like, is this going to happen is a really hard question, right? Why, why would somebody want to come into the school and hurt kids? Uh, will, you know, what will you do, Mr. Price, if somebody is trying to get here? What do we do? Do we fight back? All of these questions are really good questions, and they're exactly the kinds of questions that you'd want your kids asking, in a sense, um, in that situation. But it's hard, and we have to walk them carefully through the, the two things, one being able to know what to do if that horrible outcome ever happens in your school, but also be, be able to kind of carry that emotion with them home. And so I always like to reach out to parents as well and just remind them, like, that's a really good dinner table conversation to have that night to just sort of debrief with their kids any, any concerns that they might have that they weren't willing to share in the community of the classroom. Sometimes I think one would argue it's easy to say, well, that's America. They have a gun issue. They have societal challenges. There are broader conversations about the Second Amendment, which we've covered on this show. Uh, in regards to the Canadian context, is it safe for us to say that is America's problems, that this is not a Canadian problem, that we should not worry? I think, you know, we definitely have less worry here in Canada than they do in the States. The, the, the number of times that we've had uh, shooters in schools um, is, is vanishingly small. I, I, if I recall correctly, it's 100 times fewer per capita than the U.S., but I, I might be getting that stat wrong. The, the important thing, though, is, is that it is not zero. We haven't had zero school shootings in Canada. And so we are next to the States uh, in the case of the Nova Scotia shooter, which wasn't a school shooter. The guns came from the U.S. So, so with our neighbor choosing a different path than Canada has on gun control, um, it is still something that, that parents like myself or teachers, uh, schools have to plan for uh, in the unlikely event. But we're fortunate that um, we are we are farther away from that possibility in a school in Canada than we than you would be in a school in the United States. Mm -hmm. What should parents be telling their kids this week? You know, it's it's actually been a really tough decision. I had this conversation with my wife last night. Um, you know, my son does does Matthew know right? What does he know? How much has he been absorbing? 
um, in in my case, I've I've kind of been taking the approach of kind of keeping it away from him. Um, but it's now been enough days since the event that he's probably heard it at school. And so this weekend, our plan is to check in with him and sort of just say, hey, um, what have the kids been saying at school? Do you have any questions? And, you know, probably have, you know, just kind of sit in the sadness for a second um, and, and let, him, let him talk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in regards to what our elected officials could do. Is there more that needs to be done in your mind uh, from elected officials, uh, any rules, regulations, and laws that should be brought forward moving forward, or do you think Canada is uh, safe enough? You know, it's, it's, it's another hard question. The main, one of the things that I think about as a teacher with active shooters is that there were 18 years not half an hour or a day or a week that led to that active shooting um, event in, in Texas. There were, there were 13 teachers that could have maybe made a difference. And so I think of each of these cases, not, not to diminish the evil or the, the, the criminality of the acts of the active shooter, but I think of those as failures of systems. As a teacher, I'm always looking out for kids at risk. Who needs, who needs my helping hand in a classroom this year? And one of the big challenges we have in our systems is, is that we don't have enough of us to go around. There aren't enough counselors in schools so that when a student, when I see a student is at risk and needs somebody to kind of take their hand and steer them away from a path that I'm worried about, that we have the resources to do that, that we're not stretched too thin. So if I was to have any wish, um, it's not about gun control so much or about hardening schools. It's actually about making sure that we have the social systems in place that we don't see people deciding that the best next step for their life is to go to a gun store and buy a gun and kill children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in many ways, one could argue, and in its early days of this um, event in Texas, and there'll be more facts coming out, but one could argue that if there had been more resources, perhaps teachers recognizing a vulnerable student, in this case, um, uh, the shooter here, perhaps something could have done, potentially something could have been done. Yeah, I don't think, you know, that human nature is what it is. And there are, are folks who, you know, who, who, who you aren't going to stop. But I don't think that's the great majority of these cases. I think in the great majority of these cases, um, different paths were possible at various times. And yeah, if we, if we have the resources, if we have a bit of that, that extra capacity to take that time out with those students, um, when they're young, when they're still choosing a path, um, that's really important. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.